So this morning, um, we want to continue our conversations that we've been having um, over the past number of weeks. We've been talking about the end times. And uh, we're progressing through this. And today, um, we're going to continue to talk about it. And this today, we're going to talk about the second coming of Christ and the coming battle of Armageddon. And what does that really mean and what is it going to look like? Um, you know, I think it's important that we recognize that when God says something is going to happen, that we can have great faith that it is going to happen. Because most of the Bible is prophetic. Most of the Bible is written about things in the future. And why is that? Why is it that everything that God says that we can know without any shadow of doubt that it's going to happen just the way he said it's going to happen? How do we know that? Well, because God is omniscient, meaning that God knows all things. Nothing is outside of God's vision. In fact, the prophet Isaiah says it in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10. He says, remember the things I have done in the past. This is God speaking to the prophet Isaiah. Remember the things I have done in the past, for I alone am God. I am God, and there is none like me. Verse 10, only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. Now, how do we look, put this in terms that we can understand? Well, I, I've, what I can understand is this. <laughs> what is this? It's a Christmas snow globe. Now, what does that have to do with what I just said? Well, let me give you a little word picture here. I envision life for me as a snow globe. In other words, if I look at this snow globe, on the far left of the snow globe, as you're looking at it, would be my birth date, December 23rd, 1958. And to the far right of the snow globe would be a date I don't know yet. <laughs> That's going to be the day that I die. Everything I do in my life lives in that snow globe, right? And where is God in all this? God is not in the snow globe. God is outside of the snow globe. Just like if you have a snow globe and if you've ever set it on the table and you shake it up and you see all the little white stuff floating around in that little village or whatever, it's inside the snow globe. You're not in the snow globe. You're outside the snow globe looking down at it. Well, that's God. Now, take this a bigger picture. This is God the way he looks at all of creation. God is the creator of all things. And as the creator of all things, he is not... In the creation. He's above the creation. He's not limited by the rules of the creation that he created. Because he's the creator. Therefore, God is outside of the snow globe. And why is this important? Because when God is on the outside of the snow globe, and he looks down at it, he sees the left, which would be the very beginning of creation. And then he sees the right side of the snow globe, which would be the end of of all time, maybe at the end of the thousand-year millennial reign, at the end, before the new heavens and the new earth are created, and God sees it all as is, as if it's today. He sees the end from the beginning. And I think that's the key to what we're talking about here, is because when God knows something that way, he knows everything that's going to happen, and exactly when it's going to happen, not because he hopes it's going to happen that way, or not because he's planning on it to happen that way, hoping that we don't mess it up, 
No, he, he can write it and he can see it because it is actually something that he sees. So when he writes prophetically, he's actually seeing it as it's happening because he sees the end from the beginning. Does that make sense? Does that help you understand how God's prophetic word can be counted on? Because not only does he write it in advance, but he sees it in advance. Therefore, when he writes it, he's actually writing it as it happens. Something we can't quite grasp. The best way for me to grasp it is to think of the snow globe. Because I'm sitting outside of that little snow globe, but God's not, I'm not in it. I can see it. And that's the way God is. And that's why I like to talk about end times. That's why I like to talk about God's prophecies like this, because I have assurance without doubt that God is going to bring everything to pass just as he said they will be brought to pass. And therefore, I, I, I will not be misled. Now, we have to be careful. We have to study. We have to put the pieces together because sometimes God's word is is difficult, I will admit, to understand. But that's why we have to study it. And, you know, that's why God wants us to study things. Why would he give us this information if he didn't expect us to study it? Why would he write it if he didn't expect us to understand it the best that we can? And there, I, I thank the Lord for these great Bible teachers and people that really study the word and are better qualified than I, but I can read their writings and I can compare their writings to what the scripture says and I can learn their, from their, um, their critical thinking you know how they how God puts things together, and one thing I have learned is that the Bible never counteracts itself. So what the Bible says here will also mean the same thing there. It doesn't ever confuse itself. It may be hard for us, but that's on our end, not on God's end. I hope that makes sense. I hope that gives you a better understanding of why I really believe that it's important that we study end times, that we study the things that are yet to happen. Now. Over the past few weeks, we've discussed many things. We, we laid out an overall timeline of God's prophetic clock as he's laid it out. We talked about the fact that there is an imminent rapture of the church, which is the next great event that's going to happen in the world. Nothing has to happen before the rapture could happen, which would take away the church, take the church out of this world and into heaven. And then we, t- we spoke a couple weeks about the purpose and the nature of the seven-year tribulation and how horrific it's going to be and why that has to happen. We talked about the sheep and goats judgment that comes after the tribulation period of time. And, uh, you know, we've also described the fact that really Jesus has already come and is, as is, Jesus is coming three times to the world. Three times. Let me explain this. The first time he came, he came 2,000 years ago as a baby. He came on Christmas morning, right? He, where God became flesh. And God, Jesus took on the role of humanity while yet being fully God, he became fully human. And when he came that way, he came in a virgin birth and he was born in a manger, very lowly conditions. He came as a humble person. He didn't come as a king. He came as a humble little baby that grew up to live a perfect life so that he could become the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And that's why he came. He came to be our deliverer. The second time Jesus is going to come to the earth, to the earth we haven't, these, the second, the third, the second and third times have not happened yet. 
These are prophetic things. The second coming of him is going to be in the rapture. He's going to come in the clouds. He's not going to touch down on earth. He's going to stay in the clouds, and he's going to call all those that have died in Christ to rise first out of their graves, and then us, those that are alive with, we will rise up with them, and we will go to heaven, and that will be the marriage of the bride, where we, the church today, we are living in the grace age, which is what Pastor Rip or Pastor Leland mentioned, that we are not in the area of judgment now. We're in the era of grace, where God's grace and mercy prevail. And that we are all called to come and be under his, under his protection and under his love as we are the bride of Christ. And so the second coming really is broken down into two phases, which would be Jesus' rapture. He would rapture the church. And that's the second time he's come. The third time he comes is a time in advance, you know, after this yet is, is actually we call it the second coming of Christ where Jesus actually comes and he touches down on the Mount of Olives. And he comes with a whole different demeanor at that time. Jesus isn't coming as a humble baby. He's coming as a righteous king. And he's coming to prevail against the evil. And he is coming to inflict justice in a world of injustice. And he's coming as a, as a warring king. And that's what we want to talk about today. That's the focus of our, t- of our talk today is what happens when Jesus returns the final time. The third and final time. What happens at that time? So today I want to go into greater detail of what some of the Old Testament prophets and the book of Revelation talk about when Jesus actually comes to earth as a reigning king, as a righteous king, and he actually touches down on earth and the whole world will see him. Remember, in the rapture, it is a silent event. The world does not see him. They don't know it happened until after the fact, until after millions of people are instantly gone and just piles of clothes are left on the seats and tables and so forth, and everything's gone, and they will know then that something major happened. But when Jesus comes in the second coming, the time that we're talking about now, which is his actual third coming, I don't want to confuse you, but there will be no no, no mistake. Jesus will be seen by all people. But I want to go back. And talk about what Daniel talked about in chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12 talks about the time, beginning of verse 11. He says, from the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. Now, this was the, we went over this a week or two ago, what this means, because these are numbers that don't make sense if you don't understand what's going on. Remember, the tribulation is seven years. And it's broken in the first half, which is three and a half years, which is 1,260 days. This is a Jewish calendar, meaning 30 days in a calendar in a month. Not our, not ours that are, you know, 31, 30, 30, sometimes we have 30, 31, 28, whatever. Theirs are always 30, makes easy math, but that's the way the Jewish calendar is set up on moon cycles, not on sun cycles and so forth. So anyway, um, the, the tribulation will be, the first half is 1260 days, the second half is 1260 days, and the midpoint is what Daniel talks about here when the Antichrist sets up his, his, himself in the temple as God, and that will become the, the midpoint of the tribulation. But then he says there's 1290 days. 
So the 1260-day, this chart here, is at the end of 1260, the second half of the tribulation, Jesus returns. And then there's going to be another 30 days and another another 45 days after that until the actual kingdom, the millennial kingdom, is set up. So there's going to be a total of 75 days after Jesus returns. And in that 75-day period, what happens? So I want to talk about that a little bit more today. I want to help, hopefully under, help us understand that. And to do that, we need to go back and read what the prophet Zechariah says as he sets the stage in these prophecies. And this was written sometime between 520 and 470 B.C. In other words, 500 years before the birth of Christ, the prophet Zechariah, God has given him this prophecy that we're going to read that talks about the preparation for the second coming. So let's read through this. It's, it's 15 verses, quite a bit of reading, but we'll read through it, then we'll come back and talk about it. Zechariah chapter 14, beginning at verse 1. The New Living Translation says this, Watch, for the day of the Lord is coming when your possessions will be plundered right in front of you. I will gather all the nations to fight against Jerusalem. The city will be taken, the houses looted, and the women raped. Half the population will be taken into captivity, and the rest will be left among the ruins of the city. Then the Lord will go out to fight against those nations, as he has fought in times past. On that day, this, that's a key one, on that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will split apart, making a wide valley running from east to west. Half the mountain will move toward the north, and half toward the south. You will flee through this valley, for it will reach across to Azale. Yes, you will flee as you did from the earthquake in the days of King Uzziah of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all his holy ones with him. On that day, the sources of light will no longer shine. Yet there will be continuous day. Only the Lord knows how this could happen. There will be no normal day and night, for at evening time it will still be light. On that day, life-giving waters flow up from Jerusalem, half toward the Dead Sea and half toward the Mediterranean, flowing continuously in both summer and winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, there will be one Lord. His name alone will be worshipped. All the land from Geba, north of Judah, to Ramon, south of Jerusalem, will become one vast plain. But Jerusalem will be raised up in its original place and will be inhabited all the way from the Benjamin Gate over to the site of the Old Gate, then to the Corner Gate, and from the Tower of Hananiel to the King's Wine Presses. And Jerusalem will be filled, safe at last, never again to be cursed and destroyed." And the Lord will send a plague on all the nations that fought against Jerusalem. Their people will become like walking corpses, their flesh rotting away. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. On that day, they will be terrified, stricken by the Lord with great panic. They will fight their neighbors hand to hand. Judah, too, will be fighting at Jerusalem. The wealth of all the neighboring nations will be captured. Great quantities of gold and silver and fine clothing. This same plague will strike the horses, mules, camels, and donkeys, and all the other animals animals in the enemy camps. Let's pray for a minute. Father, there's a lot here that you've spoken about, that you've showed the prophet to, to Zechariah. And I pray, Lord, that you would just open our eyes 
and ears to what you have us to see and hear, that we can take away your wisdom and your comfort and your direction from this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I know there's a lot of imagery here, a lot of things that we've talked about that we really don't understand. But at the same time, put yourself in the place of the prophets. Imagine if you were Zechariah and God came to you and gave you this vision or gave you this words, and you're trying to describe it with technology that you've never seen. You're trying to describe what God is telling you in the time that he's living in, and they don't have modern warfare activities. For example, verse 12, it talks about where it says that the people will be, become like walking corpses, their flesh rotting away, their eyes will rot in their sockets, their tongues in their, will rot in their mouths. You know what that looks like? That looks like August 6th, 1945. The day that the city of Hiroshima on the island of Japan was bombed by a nuclear bomb. And that's exactly what happened. When that nuclear bomb blast hit, people were, were, their eyes were rotting in their sockets. Their flesh was melting off their bones and they were like walking corpses as that happened. And so when the power of God is displayed and how it will be used in the end time of that battle of Armageddon, that's what he's trying to describe, things that might be like an atomic bomb going off. And that's what Isaiah, this, the prophet Zechariah was trying to describe, things that we can't even begin to understand. So think about how difficult it was for the prophets. If you think you have a hard time understanding what's being said, think about what they were going through. But yet God is faithful. So the next few minutes... The next few minutes, I want to try to lay out a simplified understanding to the best I can of the time events that are going to be happening here. Zechariah describes the events leading up to Jesus' return and the ensuing battle that's humming at the Battle of Armageddon. Understand that the Battle of Armageddon, this will be a real battle that will happen within that 75-day window of after Jesus' return and the ensuing millennial reign, which we'll talk about in another day. But this is the real battle. And demonic influences of that day will cause all the kings of the earth to gather, to gather their armies for an all-out, all-out assault on Jerusalem. So that all the armies of the world that are left in the world at that point that are under the power, under the control of Antichrist, will be gathered together. And the Antichrist will be leading the charge. He will be doing this. It says in Revelation chapter 16, verse 13 and 14, then skipping to verse 16, it says this. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. The beast and the false prophet is the Antichrist and the false prophet. So they're leading the charge. And these, verse 14, these are demonic spirits that perform signs and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Then they will get, then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So all the nations are gathered together for war and it appears to them at the time that they will have the resources and the strength to win this battle. They think they're going to win because the Antichrist has been in charge. And even though there's been great disaster in the world, the Antichrist is still controlled by the devil and the devil still deceived enough to think that he's going to defeat God. So they're gathered 
for this battle. And then we see something amazing. And then we see Jesus and his heavenly armies coming from heaven. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 14. John the Revelator saw this. He said, Then I saw heaven opened, and a, ho- and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. Can you even imagine that? Looking in the eyes of Jesus, and their eyes are like flames of fire. I mean, we can't even begin to describe and understand what Jesus is going to look like when he's riding that white horse. He's coming from heaven now with vengeance. He's coming to be a judge. He's not coming as a mild, mild savior now. He's coming as a righteous king. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood. Whose blood? His blood and the blood of martyrs. I mean, the blood that has been shed, he's coming back to avenge it. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the word of God. And the armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses. Now, who is that army? We've talked about this a couple weeks ago. Who is that army dressed in fine linen? It's the church. It's the raptured church. We are the army of God. If you go back and read earlier in the Revelations, it refers to the bride have been, gar- have been fitted with white linen, of pure white linen, dressed in the finest of pure white linen. And that was the picture of the bride who was now the wife of Christ because we've been married in that seven-year time frame in the tribulation. We've been we've now moved from the bride to the wife of Christ because the wedding was consummated in that seven-year period. Now we come back with our our husband. Here we come back as the conquering king and we are the armies of heaven to witness all that God has in store. So now here's what happens. At this point in time, Jesus will actually stand on the Mount of Olives. Zechariah, go back to Zechariah 4, 14, verse 4. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will split apart, making a wide valley running from east to west. Half the mountain will move toward the north and half toward the south. What's amazing about this is even the earth won't remain stable when the king of kings comes back. Even the earth will shake under the power of God. There will be a great earthquake. This mountain will split in half. I mean, it will actually split in half. It will move. Imagine the mountains splitting in half and moving the power that's going to happen at that time. And he's coming and he will defeat the forces of evil that were thought that they thought they were going to triumph through the great tribulation. Revelation 19, 15 through 16, it says, From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. And at this point in time, there is no mistaking the intention of Christ. Jesus is coming back to wage war on injustice and all evil. And the world has never seen the power of God displayed as they will then. 
This is the final showdown. Jesus will be victorious. Revelation chapter 19, verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, shouting to the vultures flying high in the sky, Come, gather together for the great banquet God has prepared. Come and eat the flesh of kings, generals, and strong warriors, of horses and their riders, and of all humanity, both free and slave, small and great. Now we're describing something here that's just beyond our ability to comprehend. The angel is going to the to the birds of the air and he's saying, come, I'm going to prepare you a great feast of the flesh of humanity. God is going to destroy men, evil men, the Antichrist, those that followed him, those that took the mark of the beast will be destroyed by the sword coming out of his mouth and he is gathering together the the vultures that are going to eat the flesh of men. I know this is graphic. I, I know that. I know it's hard to listen to. But this is what God's word says. I'm not making this up. I'm just reading it. But here it is. It's kind of like, it's kind of like God is, is setting this all up. Kind of like a movie trailer. You know, kind of like, um, when Rocky Balboa was getting ready to make his final stand against Apollo Creed. <laughs> you know, he's saying, he's kind of setting the stage here. I'm going to beat the tar out of you. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to wipe you out. And he's setting the stage and he's just setting it all up. It's almost like he's taunting the evil, taunting the, the, the Antichrist, taunting Satan to say, I'm going to destroy you. Once and for all, you will be destroyed. I'm glad we're on the winning side. I'm glad we're on the winning side. I'm glad we're behind Jesus at this point and not in front of him. Because behind him, to be behind him is going to be, we're going to be supporting his cause. We're going to be coming to witness his, his great Victory, but those that are going to see his eyes like fire, those that have accepted the mark of the beast, that have rejected Christ, they're going to come and they're going to see the wrath of God poured out like never, ever before. It's hard for us to even imagine it. But then here, this is how John the Revelator sees it in Revelation chapter 19, verse 19 through 21. He says, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the world, and their armies gathered together to fight against the one sitting on the horse and his army. Remember, Jesus is on the horse, right? The white horse, Jesus is coming back. Worthy army. Verse 20, And the beast was captured. The beast is the false prophet, or the Antichrist. And with him the false prophet, who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast, miracles that deceived all who had accepted the mark of the beast and who had worshipped his statue earlier on in the tribulation. Both the beast and his false prophet were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Their entire army was killed by the sharp sword that came from the mouth of the one riding on the white horse. And the vultures all gorged themselves on the dead bodies. This is really going to happen. This is not allegory. This is not a figure of speech. This is a real battle. It's really going to happen this way, and it's going to be exactly as Jesus is describing it to us through John the Revelator. The final victory of earth is finally coming. And I know that we long for that. I mean, I know I don't know about you, but I'm tired of hearing the rhetoric coming from our 
politicians today, the lies that are being told, the fact that they're setting up their agenda for the coming world order, the fact that they're putting all this in place, how they are intentionally, I believe they are intentionally trying to destroy America. They're intentionally setting things up to open the, open the, uh, the borders so that we do not have a sovereign nation any longer. They're intentionally allowing things like this pandemic to happen because they want to depopulate. And I believe they're happening this way. And I don't believe it is a conspiracy theory. I believe it's because this is the way God has to allow it to happen. Because as long as we have a strong America, and now let, let me stop. I am a patriot. And I'm not against America. I love America. I love this country. And this is the last thing I want to see happen. But at the same time, when I see it happening, I don't get upset about it because I see it to be God's plan because this is the way things have to happen. If the Antichrist is going to have the power and the authority that he's going to have after the rapture, America cannot be a strong, sovereign country because we have to surrender to the Antichrist like every other country of the world. It's not good. It's not easy to hear. But it's the truth. We need to do what we need to do. And what we need to do is evangelize. We need to share this message to the world to save their soul. Not just to save our country. Our country is a great country. But it's a time. There's a time for everything. So now that we're at the end of the tribulation, we're at the end of the battle of Armageddon, and Jesus has wiped the slate clean, so to speak, understand that it's not over yet. There's more work to be done. Jesus has to do some things here to yet prepare for the thousand-year millennial reign. And what he's going to do now is he's going to actually do the things that are necessary to completely win the seed war that was started 6,000 years previous. And now, to understand this, you might have to go back to what we talked about a number of weeks ago. The seed war began in the Garden of Eden. The seed war I'm talking about is where, when after Satan deceived Adam and Eve, and they took of that forbidden fruit, and God came into the Garden of Eden at that time, and he talked to Adam and Eve, and he got their version of the story. And then he looked to the devil, the Satan, the serpent, and he said, you will be cursed you will crawl in your belly from here on out and the and, and and your seed will bruise the heel of my seed but the the seed of the woman will crush your head what he's talking about there is what happens right now and that the seed war is being won by god the seed war the seed of the woman is jesus the seed of the serpent is the serpent and his demons and now that this this is going to happen. Now Jesus takes to set up for what's going to happen in the thousand-year millennial reign. Satan is still on the loose, but Jesus has to capture him. And so in preparation for this, Jesus is going to bind Satan and to keep him from tempting the men in the thousand-year millennial reign as Satan tempted Adam and Eve. And we find this written in Revelation 20, the next chapter. Revelation 20, the first three verses. John the Revelator says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that old serpent who was the devil, Satan, and bound him in chains for a thousand years. The angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked so Satan could not deceive the nations any more until the thousand years were finished. 
Afterward, he must be released for a little while. We're going to come back the next week or so and talk about what this means. What is the thousand-year millennial reign? And why does this have to happen? But this kind of wraps up the man's ability to control or rule the world is done. At this point in time, that's over. Now it's the next reigning government that's going to be on the world will be Christ. He's coming as the king, not a democracy. So this ends the time that we know it in mankind's history of ruling the world. Jackie, would you come, please? So we're going to continue to talk about that more in the coming days, coming weeks, about the thousand-year millennial reign. But I want to just pause here because we've talked about some really graphic things. And I don't want you to leave upset. I don't want you to leave panicking, thinking that this is going to be horrific. First of all, you're not going to be here. If Jesus is in your heart today, you're going to be on the other side witnessing all this, watching it from the right side. But we have to be concerned about those that aren't right with Christ today. And so we, you may be asking yourself, well, why do we spend so much time discussing this? Why, why am I on this? Am I just stuck on this and can't get off it? Or why is it important that we study the end times, especially things that are going to happen that are beyond our control? We can't control any of this. And for the most part, we won't, we won't even be in a part of it, other than the fact we'll be a witness, we'll be, we'll be the righteous armies with God. But I, I study this because we're instructed to study this. I study this because God wouldn't have written it so detailed in his word if he didn't want us to learn about it. And here's the fact. The more I learn about this, the more peace I have. The more I learn about what God is going to do, and I learn about of his faithfulness, the more peace I can have about the things going on in my life right now. I don't have to fret. I don't have to worry about my life. Because God's got it all under his, under his hand. He's, he's aware of all of it. Nothing is spinning out of his control here. It may look like it is because our world, and our I mean, our government, which for many people has become their God, our government may look like it's spinning out of control, and it is. But it's not out of God's control. Therefore, I have no reason to fear the coming meltdown. I have to be prepared. I have to be ready. And I have to be strong in my faith. I have to develop my, my roots deep so that the storms of life don't blow me over so that I can be to my family, to be to those people in my sphere of influence, a stable rock of salvation into their life. And same thing for you. That's the challenge you have in your life. The reality is, it's not going to get better. It's not going to get better until it gets worse. You see, not only are the days that we're living in now going to get worse, but Matthew, Jesus says this in the book of Matthew. These are Jesus' words. Listen to what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 24, verse 21. He says, For there will be greater anguish then, than is in the day we've been talking about, at any time since the world began. And it will never be so great again. In fact, Jesus says, unless that time of calamity is shortened, not a single person will survive. 
but it will be shortened for the sake of God's chosen ones. But we don't have to worry about that. We don't have to worry. I'm not saying that to make you afraid. I'm saying that to give you reasons to rejoice and to do everything we can to be an evangelist while we have the opportunity. So today I, I want to I want us to be encouraged by this. I want you to know that God has everything under control. We're going to end today by having communion, which is something we do on a regular basis. And we do this because it's a time that we remember the death and the resurrection of Jesus. He told us to do this. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Because there's going to come a day when Jesus is going to give us the elements that we're going to take today. So first, let's pray. And then we're going to gather together to have communion. So let's pray first. Father, we just come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, I pray that if there is an issue in our hearts that we're not prepared for, I pray, God, that you will just bring it to our attention. Convict our hearts, God, as only you can. The beautiful thing about your conviction is that it's not condemnation. Condemnation is what the enemy would bring because condemnation says that I'm worthless, hopeless. Conviction says that I'm loved and that you have a very specific thing in my heart that you want me to change. And so that I pray that that conviction of the Holy Spirit would settle in our hearts now. And if there are things in my life that I need to change, I pray, Lord, you make it real to me that I can become truly a servant and I can become a child of God where I can surrender these things to you. And with that surrender comes great peace, great assurance of what the future holds. So, Father, I pray right now that if we have anything that we need to make right with you, that we can just say that simple prayer of salvation again, that prayer of repentance. Father, please forgive. I repent of my sin. Release me, Father, of the penalty that I'm due because I truly accept the gift of your grace and your salvation. And with that, then we can come to the table of communion today with a clean heart. So I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Sing the song that Jackie's playing with us. And if you want to take communion, come down and be a part. You do not have to be a member of this church. You just have to have Jesus in your heart. Father, as we go to our homes today, I pray, Lord, that we truly 
We'll give you all of our concerns today. Lord, help us to leave here with a with a happy heart, with a joyful heart. Lord, not one of grieving, not one of concern, not one of anguish, but one knowing that you have everything under control and we have joy in the midst. We have joy to replace what the world would only offer as temporary joy. We have eternal joy. And I pray, God, that that would just be so, so much upon us today. That we would have great peace as we go to our homes. That we'd go to our lives this week. Together again midweek and together again next Sunday if you tarry. Lord, but if so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We're ready to go. We're looking forward to that day when you call us home. To hear that trumpet call. God, that's our prayer. That's our blessed hope. And we give you praise. We give you glory. And everyone said with me. Amen. Amen. Be blessed. Have a great day today.